0: You are listening to The Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I will be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. The show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate podcast. This is episode number 15, and again, I'm your host, Peter Horgan. If uh, you're a returning listener, welcome back, and if this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. Episode 15, this kind of feels like like a little mini milestone of sorts for some reason. I'm excited that uh, we've reached 15. and got plenty more planned for the rest of the year, so thank you all again for your support and everything. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. I know we're about approaching February here, but I hope your new year's off to a great start, and you're still sticking towards working towards those... Uh, resolutions or goals or whatever you got in mind for the year. So keep on going. My guest today was Eric Murdoch. He is the policy director or policy guru of sorts with the Access Fund. And we spent about an hour chatting about what's happening in the climbing world and surrounding public lands, more specifically the top five threats to public lands that we're seeing today. And Eric is a wealth of information, just like every other guest I've had, but he was able to just spray me down and get us all up to speed on what's going on surrounding our public lands. And if you care at all about public lands and or its association with climbing, which I assume you do, then buckle up for this one listen very attentively. Um, Eric's got a ton of information to give us here, but before we get into the episode, there's one quick business item that I want to go over. It's the Southwest Regional Summit. I want to make a quick announcement about that. The Southwest Regional Summit's going to be happening April 18th and 19th in Tucson, Arizona, and this weekend we'll focus on specific access issues that are unique to the Southwest region and the majority of the speakers that will be presenting at the uh, at the regional summit will be locally based as well. So if you reside in the Southwest, this event is not to be missed. Day one is going to boast a number of workshops covering topics like working with public land managers, uh, cliff ecology, and climbing area development, and plenty, plenty more. And then day two, you'll all be able to get outside and get your hands dirty working on a stewardship project. So if that at all, at all interests you. This is the lowdown on the ticket situation. Early bird tickets are available until March 18th for only 25 bucks. So that's a pretty screaming deal for the next um, I don't know month and a half or so. They're going to be at the cheaper rate of 25 bucks. After that, exactly one month out from the from that weekend of the of the summit, they're going to jump up to 35. So an extra 10 bucks after March 18th. So from now until March 18th, 25 bucks march 18th up to the event 35 so be sure to get your tickets if you reside in that in that region like i said please don't miss this event it's going to be awesome so now back to eric like i said he provided a wealth of information on what's going on surrounding our public lands and if you want to impress all your friends over beers coffee at the crag you're going to be able to, after you listen to this episode, be like, hey, did you hear about the administration sidestepping the democratic process to keep acting leaders in their positions? Or have you heard about all the environmental policy rollbacks that have happened during this administration's uh, you know, tenure? And have you heard that your voice and input is now being limited in the NEPA process? You're going to be able to talk about all of that if you tune into the whole episode. So I highly encourage you to stick around, listen to the whole thing. And I will see you all on the other side. Enjoy my conversation with Eric Murdoch. All right. Well, good morning, Eric. Thank you so much for taking some time to sit down and chat about the top five threats to public lands that we're seeing these days. How's it going this morning? It's going great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Um, Yeah, the way we we, usually start these uh, episodes, I'd like to find out a little bit more about my guests. So, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and uh, give us a little background on your climbing history and and enroll with the Access Fund?
1: Sure. So, uh, yeah, so I'm Eric Murdoch, and I'm the policy director at the Access Fund. Um, I've been working at the Access Fund since 2013, so almost seven years um, at the Access Fund. And before then, I've, I've worked in a variety of different industries. Um, I worked as a geologist doing exploration geology, and I've worked for various federal land managers like the uh, Bureau of Land Management and, and uh, National Park Service and the Forest Service and NOAA. And I've worked for them as an employee as well as a consultant. Um, and then I've also um, spent some time in the university system, so teaching at the University of Arizona and some community colleges, um, so my background includes um, private industry, um, uh, academia, um, federal agencies, and now nonprofits. Um, yeah, so that's 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 my background, my work background. And then as far as climbing, um, climbing's been a big part of my life for about thirty years. Wow. Um I was introduced to climbing when I when I was um, when I started off in college in in the late '80s, and I've been climbing ever since. Before then, I was I was I was really intrigued with with our national parks and with and with um, just getting outside and, and being in nature. But I but I I didn't really um, I didn't really know about climbing until I was probably about eighteen years old. But I was really interested in cycling, and that was probably the the reason why I ended up doing this job. Is is when I was sixteen, I I rode my bike with my brother uh, across the. Across the country from san francisco to washington dc And, and and that trip was probably the reason um why eventually i got into this business and i always tried to work outside as a geologist and working for as a park ranger but um but yes six seven years ago working for the access fund i kind of put it all together and um and really became an advocate for recreation for climbing and for public lands so that's that's my history in a nutshell.
0: Nice. Well, that's awesome. That's a very, uh, well-rounded history of getting every kind of dynamic thrown in there from federal to academia and out of nonprofit I mean, you get your well experienced across the board and you did your PhD on a climbing related project, correct?
1: Yeah. So, so in, in 2000, um, well, to step back, so I was working as a geologist, um, as an environmental geologist and also doing exploration. And one thing about working in geology is you gotta get used to being laid off because it's a boom bust cycle. So so right. in the late nineties, um, the copper gold market just tanked and um the company I was working for laid off all their geologists. That's the, the first the first peop the first people to go are typically geologists because you don't need the stuff anymore, um, and they're and they're they're paid pretty well. So um, I took a job at the Bureau of Land Management, and that was where I was introduced to recreation management. I didn't know what recreation management was at, 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 when I was studying. I didn't know that was even a thing, and um, and I started to get intrigued by it, and then decided to go back to school and get a get a PhD in, in natural resource management, and rec, rec management. And, um, at the same exact time, um, the country was the different land agencies, the forest service and the BLM and park service were really grappling with what to do with these little metal things that are stuck into the rock. <laughs> and, um, they, especially the forest service was dumping a lot of money into trying to understand how to manage fixed anchors. And that was in 2000, basically. So, that's when I enrolled in school. So I've always tried to do things that were relevant and timely. And, and, and that was, that was the thing going on. So, so I, um, designed my, my doctoral research around, um, fixed anchors. And at that time I was really interested in quantitative analyses. So I was trying to quantify, um, policy changes, um, in the wilderness dealing with with climbing and fixed anchors and that's how I got got into it so I spent uh, three years living at Joshua tree um, <laughs> studying uh, how people move through landscapes um, as it relates to different attributes of the climbing system and um, yeah I was really lucky that the 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 agencies needed that research done so I actually hired on with the park service so I was working for the park service um, while I was doing my doctoral research and those were three of the best years of my life living in Joshua Tree and they certainly yeah, no were It was great. Yeah. And it was really good for my climbing. Really sort of <laughs> diving into um Joshua Tree Rock. And and yeah, after three years I kind of figured out how to get up some stuff out
0: there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there a couple of times and it's an incredible landscape. I mean, you know, lifetime's worth of climbing. And uh, well that's 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 awesome. And I couldn't have I don't think I could ask for a better guest to uh run us through our topic today of the top five threats to public lands. Um, So let's dive in. Let's get started with number one, uh, being the use of, quote, acting leaders to sidestep democratic processes. And conveniently, the acting leaders that are in these positions now are former advocates of the oil and gas industry and have literally written the book about Sagebrush Rebellion that's, you know, relating to the BLM acting director right now. Um, have we seen something like this before having at least acting leaders just kind of sitting in there or is this unprecedented? We have seen acting leaders,
1: um, in, in, in these positions before and it's kind of, um, it's really an important tool if you're, if you're in the executive branch in order to fill positions and to, and to get things done, um, because it does take a long time to, to um nominate and approve uh, a uh a, a position. You know you gotta go it's gotta be nominated by the president and then it's gotta be um and then it's gotta be confirmed by the Senate. What right. we haven't seen before is the amount of acting um exactly. leaders. And like you said, it's it's it, it it it's it's basically unprecedented to have 60% of the Department of Interior appointed positions vacant. So 60% are vacant. Wow. So that's interesting, but then right. the other interesting thing is the ones that um that have acting leaders several are um are exactly what you said sort of advocates for for oil and gas, advocates for public land sell offs um, you know especially when you look at um the the new BLM acting director Pembley um, you mm-hmm. know he actually like you said wrote the book um, on on selling off public lands to states and the perils of of our public land system. With that said, not all the acting leaders are you know focused on that. For example, mm-hmm. right now the acting um, director of the National Park Service is a guy by the name of David Vela, who's put. I mean, he spent his entire career working for the, working for the park service and, 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 and trying to protect, um, the park system. So not every one of the acting leaders is, is as focused, um, as the BLM leader on eviscerating the, the agency, weakening the agencies and giving back, um, power and jurisdiction to state governments and private entities. But, um, but a lot of them are.
0: I mean, what's taken so long? Like they need, you know, we—they're totally sidestepping this whole Senate process to, you know, for checks and balances to bring these people in. Like, what's what's the holdup here? You mean why are they
1: why are they not appointing people? Right. Well, there's a—I think there's a couple things. One, um, this administration is really sort of um, clumsy and 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 just not that good <laughs> at, at at doing work. And, and that's why the, I think that's one of the reasons why they're just, they just have a lot going on. I mean, right now with the impeachment, you think they're going to be, you know, appointing an, uh, a, a director of a park service right now. They got, they got, sure. they got yeah. more important things to do. But right. the second thing is that a guy like William Penley, Pembley is, is not going to get confirmed by the Senate. It's just too controversial. So the, the, the executive branch has a real interest in changing the culture of the Bureau of Land Management. And in order to do that, they have figured out that they can just um, appoint Pembley as an, as an acting um, official and then just keep giving him um, more time basically every – I can't remember. I think it's three months – you have to, um, extend the position and the, and the secretary of interior can do that. And that's, they just did that last week. So they right. extended him through for another several months. And, um, it's just a, it's just a, a little bit of a sneaky way a run around, um, to get the result that you want. And, um, and regardless of what this administration says to the public about protecting public lands and not, int- not being interested in sell-offs, The BLM has made some pretty bold moves, you know, first moving the, uh, the Bureau of Land Management from out of Washington, DC to out West, which is not horrible in itself. Sure. Um, There are some things about it that are, that are pretty damaging and we can talk about why it's so valuable to have, um, agency officials in DC. There are some, Mm -hmm. some really important, um, reasons why you want that, but, but at the same time, um, uh. If you're interested in changing culture, one really useful trick is to move move the agency.
0: And they've been wanting to do that for, I mean, quite some time now, right? This is not like a brand new thing. It's not a brand new thing, and there's there was a big push, and and, and you kind of refer,
1: you know, referred to this um, that that William Penley has been in the in this business for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing <laughs> is that he, you know, he worked for for James Watt in the in, who was the Secretary of Interior under Ronald Reagan. Right. And that's when a lot of these ideas were sort of developed. And a lot of the folks in that administration went off to <clears throat> excuse me, to work for various think tanks to figure out what is the best way to make this happen? What is the best way to Give the power of these federal agencies and the federal lands to states and private entities, and there are a variety of different solutions that they came up with, legislative solutions, um, administrative solutions. um and and we're seeing um the administrative solutions being implemented right now. Mm-hmm. and then cultural solutions. and that is that's that's the first move. I mean, they knew if you take a government agency that's been there for decades, in D.C., in Washington D.C., and you move it out west, you're going to see a bunch of people who have dedicated their careers to federal lands retire because they mm-hmm. have houses and kids, and they've they've rooted themselves in Washington D.C. And that's the right. first thing that this administration wants to do: get rid of those people, change the culture. Um, and uh, you know, it was proposed by by Secretary Zinke, who really didn't have the skills to make it happen. Um, I remember I was I was I was in the Department of Interior meeting with um, the uh, the the Recreation Czar who was appointed by Zinke and on the map in his, in, in, uh, in in his office this guy uh, Rick May good guy in his office there was a big map of the BLM of the of the United States sort of outlining Zinke's plans for for uh, modifying and moving the Bureau of Land Management but they never really implemented those plans. But, um, but Secretary Bernhardt, so um, Secretary Zinke's successor um, mm. seems to be a little bit more skilled um, in, in, in getting things done like this. So that's, yeah, that's sure. the reason why it's happening now.
0: Okay. Right on. Um, yeah. Penley, not to kind of beat a dead horse here, but Penley was only supposed to be there to, I think, to like September 30th of last year. And he's still there. I mean, that, that was due, was that due to, uh, Bernhardt making a rule change on, um, uh, the, the law is now escaping me, but did he do some kind of sneaky rule change to be able to extend these periods? That's
1: right. That's, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, he made a rule change and now he can, um, uh, provide extensions yeah. basically when, whenever he wants. So, so it's really blurring the lines between who's acting and who's permanent. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, Pembley probably has a mission to get certain things done, and then um, then he might be out of there. But um, but this is a really hard thing to reverse once you move an entire agency out west for, I can't remember what the cost is, many millions of dollars. And the, and the administration says that it's going to save many millions of dollars in um, the next couple <laughs> decades. Although they provided a very odd analysis with, 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 with literally no numbers to back up that assertion, but, mm-hmm. but they do assert that. So yeah, that's uh that's what's going on.
0: Yeah. So more specifically, can you list anything and how this might impact climbing policy?
1: Yeah. So why do we care? That's that's, thanks for bringing it back to, to what we're here <laughs> to talk about. You know, well, why does it matter to, to climbers? And yeah. and and the first thing I think that we have to start with is um, about uh, a little less than sixty percent of our climbing is 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 located on federal lands. So that's the first thing. And about twelve percent is on BLM lands, places like Red Rocks, and you know a variety, uh, loads of 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 other places um, that are really valuable to us are on BLM lands. And in fact, just this past uh, spring the Bureau of Land Management finally, um, released a website called, uh, it was called 20, 20, 20 great climbing areas on BLM lands, but, but they had to remove one or two due to some issues. But, but anyway, it highlights some of the best climbing on BLM lands and the BLM is promoting it. So wow. there's a, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, uh all over the place. Like if you live in California, little places like New Jack City that are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just some places I'm that are coming to coming to the top of my head. Yeah. But but um so so why does it matter um, that the BLM is being weakened and 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 the main one and and I think in this discussion that we have today a lot of a lot of the things that we talk talk about I think we can we can We can recognize that they're anchored on this administration's main focus to um, prioritize energy independence. And really, the way they framed it is energy dominance. That's that's actually in the executive order, energy dominance. And that's what this goes back to. So if the agency, the Bureau of Land Management, is focused on giving more jurisdiction to the states and using those lands for energy dominance, there will be some interaction between those activities and climbing. And we've already Mm -hmm. seen that. We've actually won an appeal in in Nevada where you have oil and gas leases that are being auctioned off that have an overlap with a climbing area. And Mm -hmm. that is the root of all the things we're gonna talk about. Why NEPA is important and why the energy dominance mandate is is so harmful to our public lands and our, and our federal land agency culture. And I just want to start off by saying it's not that the access fund or climbers in general should be against energy independence and frankly, against development in general, because we'd be hypocrites. People are driving their vans and cars to crags. 100%. All of our, all of our yep. gear is made of metal. I mean, where do you yep. think your, your, your phone comes from? So, so, so we would be hypocrites to say, don't, don't, you know, um, Pull metals out of the ground, but what we are <laughs> saying is, is that we want, we need to reinstate the balance in the management of our federal lands. Exactly. So there are laws that say you gotta, you you, you gotta um, consider cultural resources. You have to consider recreation resources. You have to consider ecology when you make decisions dealing with our public lands. Our public lands are valuable for a lot of reasons, including development. And this administration is making most of its decisions in a short-sighted way that prioritizes one thing above others. And that's kind of the beauty of our of our federal lands is that we have all these different values and this administration is prioritizing energy over all else. And that is what is going to do damage to, um, to our climbing areas.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect setup for threat number two cuts to environmental regulations to accommodate energy development. As you just stated, these lands operate, most of them operate under a multiple use mandate, but energy development is the top priority of this administration. I, I read a report um, for, that was take, from data that was taken from 2005 through 2014 that's saying if U.S. public lands were a country, it would rank fifth in, in the world of in uh, GHG emissions. not only Mm -hmm. does that exacerbate that problem, it of course poses threatens, uh, excuse me, threats to climbing experience. So how does this, what does this imply for future access to crags or crags that coincide with existing energy use, you know, like the Red River Gorge or like Joe's Valley, for example?
1: Yeah. And those two are really interesting. And by the way, at Joe's, we're seeing some other impacts that we're going to, that are going to, we're going to feel in the next year or two, because there's actually a private mine really close to joe's that's being reactivated wow. but um but it's an interesting interaction because at red river gorge you know there's a there's actually a pretty um uh healthy symbiosis between um development and climbing you know the there the, are rigs near the crags oh yeah and right <laughs> and, and uh what's that
0: yeah, they're they're right by the crag. You're climbing and the thing kicks on and scares the hell out of you then. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same
1: time, you, we're using the uh, the drill roads as, as approach trails and the land is supposed to be used for multiple uses. Right. Um, there are other types of development that is a lot more a lot more harmful, for example, at Oak Flat, where you're going to. Mm-hmm. Where there's a there's a chance, and Axis Fund has been fighting hard to keep this from happening, but where you might have a block cave mine, which is actually going to decimate the entire landscape, actually collapse thousands of boulder problems and climbs into the right. ground right so that's not a healthy symbiosis and 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 I think it really those two examples of sort of climbing next to uh, oil derricks um, in Red River gorge, oil pumps rather. And, 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 a, and a block cave in, in, in Arizona kind of shows the spectrum of the types of different um, development possibilities and how complicated this issue is. So when you have people saying, oh, it's not a problem, I've climbed in River Gorge, or this is a huge problem, look at what's happening in Oak Flat. The solution and the discussion should really be somewhere in between you know mm-hmm. that's that's the that's the spectrum of 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 what's happening but with that said your question about you know what do these rollbacks mean to climbing they 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 mean a lot and and i think some of the some of the most important reasons why we should be fighting these changes to regulations and rollbacks is because they have unintended consequences for the climbing community. And that is because of these rollbacks, we may not have the same opportunities to voice our comments on public projects. Mm-hmm. So that's when we do work. I mean, that's how access fund and climbing advocates do work is we have opportunities for public comment. We've got a a game plan that's that's clearly articulated in the regulations for how you go about um, uh, approving or not approving a project. And if you only focus on energy dominance, and you only focus on fast tracking these projects, there's a lot of unintended consequences. And there's industries like recreation, which may be diminished due to the prioritization of, of 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 development, and I don't think the administration is out to this current administration is out to destroy climbing or destroy recreation. It's that sure. their focus is elsewhere, and mm-hmm. we unfortunately are 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 taking some hits because of these rollbacks.
0: So, could, going back to that example of Joe's Valley and that private mine, you know, presenting some problems a year or two down the road. I mean, would that close? Could that potentially close access? Just period, or would that just be have to be something that climbers coexist with?
1: Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think that um, some of the things that happen if you have a private mine that shares the same road as the climbers is there's just going to be more traffic, and for mm-hmm. people who have driven on roads with haul trucks and and drill rigs, it's, it's sketchy. And sometimes it's scary. (laughs) And sometimes for safety reasons, they have to shut down perhaps some, some, uh, parking pullouts or change the way that you use the road. So I think that there's going to have to just be some, some modifications to how people, um, access certain, certain areas of Joe's Valley. Number one And, um, also, um, there's going to have to be some changes to expectations about what it feels like when you're climbing out there. You know, like you said, you you might hear some industrial noise, you might see some more dust from these things. And that's just, um, you know, the, the, the best thing for us to do is to, um, is to get into discussions with the, with the, the mining company to figure out how we can, um, you know, balance both, both of the uses. And the fact is, and there was a great movie documentary that came out in this year's Real Rock on Joe's Valley. I mean, it clearly shows that Joe's Valley could be responsible for, um, or is responsible for a uh, economic uptick in the right. local region. And I know for a fact that the congressional representative, John Curtis, for that area is well aware of this, and he's a great friend of the climbing community. He's a he's a Republican um, representative who really wants to protect recreation. So we're going to bring him into the discussion. Actually, I'll be I'll be meeting with him next month when I'm in D.C. and we're going to talk about this this issue.
0: Right on. Yeah, you know, I unfortunately had to miss Real Rock this year, so I haven't seen it, but I have heard that exact point that you just mentioned be brought up in the film of the economic impact that climbers have in that community. There is huge.
1: And I think it's a good story that we could extend across the country. When we're sort of deliberating about, should we um, really go all in on this energy dominance mandate? Should we try to balance the different uses of federal lands? I think that all of the economic data that's been um, produced over the last five, 10 years, especially since the the recreation passed, The recreation act passed and Mm -hmm. and now there's a mandate you know for the bureau of economic analysis to do this this economic analysis of recreation i think it's really clear that it would be very short-sighted to diminish a place like joe's valley for a short-term benefit um of mining um which which we might need to do but i'm a great example of what happens with mining i mean you know, the boom bell cycle is something that I lived through a couple there times you know. in, in my career as a geologist. So, I mean, that's yeah. just the way it is.
0: Yeah, personal experience. Um, a little bit ago, you were setting us up for number three perfectly, um, talking about, uh, you know, the rollbacks and everything and limiting public participation. Um, so the third threat is limits on public participation that silence the public voice. And what this is largely referring to is the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, could you give the folks a quick overview of what that act is and what it does?
1: Yeah, so so NEPA was passed um, by by Nixon,
0: you know, of of all
1: people, and right. um, really was an acknowledgement during that sort of environmental era that the government needs to do a better job of analyzing the environment when it does projects on federal lands. And when NEPA was passed, um it it provided a, a bunch of things. It provided this process, and, and, and a key part of this process is that during the process there are various opportunities for the public to weigh in. And it also created some interesting bodies within the government, like for example, CQ, the Council on Environmental Quality. And and what what that body is supposed to do is it's supposed to work with the president. To um, implement um, all things dealing with the environment, including analyzing whether a monument should be designated, things like that also, as well mm-hmm. as looking at um, big ticket items like NEPA revision. and when people are talking about oh let me let me step back so basically any time that that the government makes changes to the environment or the ch- or changes to the way we experience the environment move through the environment we're supposed to go through a nepa analysis and um one of the one of the big big points of confusion right now is what's going on with this nepa revision does it mean that we're revising the law or does it mean that we're revising the implementation of law how will you implement this this nepa and the answer is the latter this administration Is proposing a a pretty serious revision to the way the government implements NEPA. And we haven't done that in like 40 years. So it's Mm -hmm. not that that idea unto itself is bad. Why not make things better? Why not make things more streamlined? Exactly. But we go back to the original problem. If you start this NEPA implementation revision process with the, the idea that you are doing it in order to fast track or to prioritize only one of the public land values and that would be development uh you know building roads building mines then you're you're setting yourself up for a problem where the other values are going to get diminished right and that's what's happening right now so yeah back last year the 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 administration um issued this this notice advanced notice of proposed rulemaking and they reached out to everyone and they said hey look See, our CEQ, our Council on, Environment, on Environmental quality um, is considering this, this proposal. And if you want to submit comments, um, you, know, you can tell us what, what you value about NEPA and, and so forth. And they um, they got, I don't remember, it was almost 15,000. I think it was 12,000 comments on that. And what we just saw last week um I think it was January 9th was the proposal that came out. So now we've got until March to send our comments in, um, on the proposal. So that's, that's where we are right now.
0: The outdoor Alliance is saying that 93% of public comment periods could be rolled back, you know, cutting these comment periods down from 30 days down to just 10 days, um, That's a, yeah, down to a third. And that's when, like you said, when you guys get your work done, what, what, uh, how, how, I guess, I don't know, nervous or something, um, are you to have this limited time now?
1: Well, this is so, so what they mean by the 93%, um, rollback is is not just the comment period because we've already seen that you know the cut co- mm. the, the, the the shorter comment periods were implemented last year, so that was really interesting so we can talk about that for a second is what does that do so they've already reduced the comment periods on sort of on oil and gas auctions. so for example, if there is a piece of land uh, a piece of real estate on on bureau of land management land that's up for oil and gas auction. You used to have thirty days to rally your neighbors and to and to and to write a comment to the to the Bureau of Land Management and say, Hey, here's the problem with this with this project, or hey, this is this is great. I love this project. You you had thirty days. And now they cut it down to ten. And I think the interesting thing about this ten day period is that it um for for an organization like the Access Fund, we can figure out how to rally and and get our information together and do an analysis and send in comments in 10 days. It's a lot of work. We might not have an opportunity to write all of our members and, and get our analysis done in time to write our members and then say, hey, can you submit comments? But we usually have enough time. And Right after the, the comment period was reduced to 10 days, we sort of designed a, a monitoring system so we can monitor all the federal lands for these sorts of activities and figure out how to quickly jump into action and, and send in these comments. But um so that's so that's really that's 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 something that's hard on us, but a lot harder on, on the public. And sure. the other interesting thing about the 10-day period is when you think about like city councils and county commissions, they don't meet any every 10 days. They meet <laughs> every month, right? So so this is a really important thing to consider is that if you um, only provide 10 days, it's gonna bypass the typical pattern of how communities meet. And and I live in Estes Park now, and I see you know, how often our, our board of trustees has a meeting, and you know it's just not gonna happen in 10 days. The 10-day um, comment period will, will slip through the cracks of most of these like local governments. And that's really a shame, because um, local governments really need to be able to weigh in on these things. Right. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing about that ninety-three percent reduction is it's not just about reducing public comment periods. It's about it's actually about removing public comment periods. So what that is about is that there are certain um, types of projects that don't need to go through the whole NEPA process. So when we talk about the NEPA process, it could it could be very short. It could be a project that gets evaluated and they say, oh. This, is, this doesn't need any further evaluation. We're going to give it a categorical exclusion. That's what they call it in NEPA language. And then you're off the hook and then you can start on your project. Or you say, you know, this deserves a little bit more analysis. So we're going to go through this thing called the, an environmental assessment. And then at the end of that process, you might say, you know, we're, we're done with this. We're ready to go. Or you might say, no, this actually needs a little bit deeper analysis. And then you do the full-blown environmental impact statement. The right. point of this is that they have increased the number of instances and allowances for categorical exclusion where there exactly. is no public comment. So that's right. one of the things that's really um, that's going to be really hard on us is is just losing opportunities
0: for public comment. Could easier projects such as like trail stewardship and things of that nature, stuff that we need to do as climbers, could that be pushed through? easier or more quickly can that be more streamlined and kind of yeah benefit for us
1: that's a great question and it brings up uh, a, an ideological um you know conflict within the climbing community right yes some some projects would be fast-tracked so so Climbers who are climbing advocates who are working on trail projects around the country have noticed that sometimes um, NEPA is what stands between them and authorizing a trail, you know, getting formal access and getting a climbing trail actually included in the transportation network of the of the federal system. Right. And 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 I think that it it really begs us to evaluate what our priorities are. In other words, is it more important for us to get a trail six months or a year sooner? Or is it important for us to maintain our ability to comment on all projects? Is it important for us to maintain our democratic, democratic sensibilities um, within you know, this entire system? And the Access Fund has decided that Short term gains and a couple gains on on projects around the country is not worth um, damaging the entire system of checks and balances. And we're looking at things that are a little bit greater than ourselves sometimes. And the other thing that's important about these NEPA, the, the current proposal, is that um, the proposal clearly states that the administration is not going to be looking at future effects of projects and we think that's really short-sighted obviously if you don't believe in climate change then maybe you don't believe that certain projects are going to have any ill effects in the future but if you do believe in climate change then that is an important um variable that has to be considered and yes it would it does make an analysis um take a little bit longer and yes it may um it may uh result in certain types of development projects roads um, energy development to not be able to get done. Um, but we think that it's an important, uh, an important variable and it's important to consider all of the effects of a project on the future, not just, um, trying to fast track, um, a project.
0: Yeah. I thought, I think you bring up a great point. We're kind of stuck in this position between yeah, the short-term versus long-term and what's going to take, what needs to take precedence and just to think about it more holistically in a bigger picture. Uh, I like the, access fund stance that that you guys take on this and I'm really glad you pointed that that out and highlighted it um moving into I, go ahead sorry I, I should say one more thing to that but but mm-hmm. but on the on the flip
1: side you know these the it, the 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 new NEPA proposal might help us on certain projects, but it certainly will hurt us on other projects. So, for example, right. on those types of projects where a road or or a mine is going to overlap a climbing area, and we and like I said, we've got a ton of climbing areas that are on real estate that's not wilderness, that's not that doesn't have added protections, that is open for oil and gas development, open for mining, open for other mm-hmm. development, and that is where we need the NEPA to be intact so that we can. And, um, support our climbing areas and so that we can present this information to any administration and say look we know you didn't know that there was a climbing area there and we know that you didn't know how many people enjoy this place and how much money it generates but here's the information and we want you to include it in your analysis and with a nepa revision a certain type of nepa revision we're not going to have that opportunity so i believe that is both are important but i believe that that is a bigger risk than the benefits associated with fast tracking the trail.
0: Yeah, 100%. I, I definitely agree. I'm I'm in the midst of that right now. I worked in a big trail project this past year and, and we'll we'll be presenting it to the NEPA ID team here in about a month or so. so um, I totally uh, understand everything you got going on here and, and yeah, I'm right in the thick of it. So we'll see how that goes. All right, number four, budget cuts, the hamstring access and conservation. I mean, the backlog of maintenance that the Park Service is facing is really no mystery, and we've heard a lot about it uh, over the, you know, over a number of years. I think it's up to like twelve billion with a B now, and that doesn't include the BLM and the Forest Service. So, what can you tell us about uh, hamstringing access and conservation?
1: Yeah, so I think first we should talk about what what is that maintenance backlog? A billion dollars? How did we get a billion dollars in the hole here? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to understand what the park service manages and what that what that what that number really means. You know, the park service has some pretty high ticket um uh items like for example giant bridges, highways, you know, when you're in Washington DC driving around on the GW Parkway, that's owned and managed by the park service so right there you could see man this is how you get this really really big number because they're in charge of managing some pretty expensive things you know expensive buildings all across the, all across the country in addition There are proposals that each park has, for example, we want to build, we need, our visitor center is falling apart. We need to build a new visitor center. Those projects are included in the maintenance backlog. So when we think about this, this giant number in the billions, we need to be, we need to remind ourselves, that's not like fixing up your climate trails. I mean, it's part of it, but that's a tiny, tiny piece, right? We're talking about a lot of big infrastructure projects. Um, so that's the first thing is sort of like understanding where, where we are as climbers in the, in, in that maintenance backlog. Um, you know, one thing that's been happening, um, over the last several decades is, is that the budgets to, for national, um, parks and, 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 and national forests and BLM lands has been shrinking. And we all see it. Like if you've been climbing for a couple decades, especially in the back country, you've noticed that. There's all these parks that don't have backcountry rangers anymore. You know, 20 years ago, if you went into, let's just take uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon, beautiful park with some really interesting climbing in the backcountry. They used to have backcountry rangers stationed in the backcountry, in huts, managing trails, helping helping um, educate uh, visitors, um, dealing with search and rescue. And they're just not there anymore. So we've lost so many positions that actually affect climbing. Um, you know, these are the types of people that would maintain things, that would monitor things, that would save people. And they're they're just those jobs just aren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so this is a it's it's a pretty big deal. And um it is interesting that that the that the federal land budget is so small compared to our national budget. Everyone wants to talk about how they how they love national parks, how national parks are are unique to to America and, and are and are a big part of our identity but no one wants to put their money where their mouth is. Exactly.
0: Right. So what does the 2020 appropriations bill hold in store for us? It's a good question. And, and I think
1: that um, when we talk about that, we, 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 we should talk about it in two different ways. One is, what did the administration ask for? And then the second thing is, what's Congress actually doing? Mm-hmm. so every so 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 the administration obviously proposed a budget um a year ago or so, and really that budget the Congress doesn't have to listen to that to that budget, but it's really symbolic about what this administration stands for, and in that budget, we saw huge reductions. In public lands funding, so right there we see sort of what the spirit of this administration is and how they really think about our public lands and how much money should be should be going towards it. Fortunately, Congress does not entirely agree, and you know we're seeing more of the same. Basically, it's no giant cut um, this year compared to last year, but we're also not seeing any big advances, and that's really what we need. Right. Um, the the budget itself is 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 not. Addressing the maintenance backlog, so the Congress is dealing with the maintenance backlog in a different way. They're proposing legislation to take money from different, um, from 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 really from from oil and gas development, onshore and offshore. And this isn't happening yet, although it's although there's other projects that deal just with offshore drilling. But the point is, is that the Congress is proposing other fixes for how to shrink that maintenance backlog. But that does not have to do with the with the day-to-day operations of our public lands. So for example, let's go back to those backcountry rangers. Mm-hmm. They they're not part of the maintenance backlog. We mm-hmm. need we need annual appropriations to pay their salaries. So we can deal with the maintenance backlog all we want, but we're not getting the money to actually Plow the roads every every winter in Rocky Mountain National Park to, to make sure we have uh, interpreters in the Park Service to help make sure that visitors know not to you know poop in different places and to walk off trail and that sort of stuff. So we've got these two different things going on. And it is an interesting situation right now where Congress is really focused on the maintenance backlog number and not as focused on the operations, the, the, the annual appropriations to the federal land agencies.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thanks for making that distinction. When you just mentioned something about uh, offshore drilling, were you alluding to the Land and Water Conservation Fund?
1: Yeah. So, so we've had this great program since the '60s, the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and that's an example of a budget-neutral project. So it doesn't have, it has nothing to do with with right, like the the park ranger salaries. It just has to do with a fund and essentially the government skims money off the top of the revenue of offshore drilling and sticks it into the general treasury and uses that money for various um projects that enhance public lands or help out um n- not just federal by the way also state and municipal and mm-hmm. builds um open spaces and 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 recreation facilities in um in states all over the country, I, I believe that there is not one state in the United States that has not benefited from LWCF. And i tell you, you know, right now, as I mentioned, I live in Estes Park. If I walk down to downtown Estes Park, there is a sport climbing area downtown that benefited from LWCF money. I mean, this is ubiquitous. Wow. And the Access Fund has used LWCF money, you know, a dozen times to improve and purchase climbing areas. So this is a really important project. But there's other legislation out there that doesn't relate to LWCF, or I guess it does relate and that it's similar, but there's legislation that would that that's proposing to use onshore and offshore drilling revenue um to um to chisel away at our at our uh, maintenance backlog.
0: Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a large number we need to tackle here, and like you said as well, addressing the operational uh, budget in, in addition to this just this backlog. Not everything is going to cover the operational budget too, and we need those people out there with the you know the explosion and popularity of recreation just keeping you know growing and growing. We need those folks out there educating the public, so we'll, we'll hopefully that can get prioritized. Yeah, I know, and remember, it's not just about interpretation, educating
1: the public and making sure that there's search and rescue going. On. It's not just that. Mm-hmm. It's also mm-hmm. about science. So sure. for example, there are scientists all over our federal lands that are collecting data on, uh, on climate change and other changes to our ecosystem. And those People are being cut. And that's a really important thing for us to remember. If you remember mm-hmm. last year when the government was shut down, a lot of bad things happened. You know, people were running amok in, in our national parks and wreaking havoc. But some right. of the things that that didn't make the major news is a lot of projects that have been collecting data for decades shut down. There are data holes, you know, for for whatever, for a month when the government was shut down that just never that can never be filled. And those are the sorts of people and 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 positions that often aren't aren't they're not very sexy and they don't get publicized but they're really Mm -hmm. important for our understanding of just our environment and 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 climate change and our in the future of our public lands
0: right i agree did anything ever happen with uh the park service entry fees being uh brought up or or risen by zinke yeah i remember that proposal so
1: yeah. I don't understand why why Zinke made that proposal. I mean, I, I, I can understand it because I think he visited certain parks and saw, you know, if you, if you go into a park sometimes after five o'clock, there's no one there collecting collecting fees. Or if you go really early in the morning or you can mm-hmm. stuff a car full of people and that just drove him nuts. You know that's money left <laughs> left on the table, and he's trying to figure out how to fund our public lands. The interesting thing is, there's a lot, there's there's a lot of constraints on what you can use fee money for. So going back to operations, you can't use it to 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 just run operations. You can't exactly. use fee, fee money for you know just paying people. You got to use it for other things. Um, and that's and the administration got themselves into trouble because when the when the government shutdown happened, they they started to use the fee money for for some ways that that um. That aren't aren't allowed, aren't traditionally allowed. Yeah, but anyhow, yes. Yeah, so so Secretary Zinke um, made this proposal to jack up the rates of of uh, entrance fees by a lot, by by um, you know over a hundred percent in some cases, and um, and there was just a lot of backlash and people were really angry because it became a social justice issue. You know, it's like you know when we're thinking about access to public lands. Um, it's hard enough to pay 25, 30 bucks to get into a park. Imagine if you had to pay 70 and then they said, well, we'll do it in the summertime, just when it's busy. And in the wintertime when there's less people at certain parks, we'll drop it down. Well, that's when, that's when families have vacations and that's going to hit certain people the most. There are some ideas on the table, like why not, um, uh, have international visitors pay more. You know, there's people that are traveling all the way over the United States, um, spending a bunch of money on travel, and then they spend you know twenty bucks to get into a national park. it's like eh. compared to what they're spending on their trip it's probably not that much. so those sure. are some ideas um, actually those ideas have been knocked around, especially in places related to climbing, like in Denali should you charge someone from Germany more to climb Denali than american and 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 uh, ten years ago the 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 park service decided that they couldn't do that. But I think that they're starting to reevaluate some of these ideas. Cause there there is a need to bring in more money, but blocking people um with a very unpopular proposal like that is not the way to do it. So the end result, the end of the story was that they never um finalized that 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 idea. They never actually um implemented the idea to raise the fees that much. And instead, they just went through a regular fee rate fee fee analysis and typically, you know. They they send it out for public comment and they bump up the fees according to um, you know inflation as well as uh, just the, uh, the 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 cost benefit analysis that the government does. So the, so fees were raised but very little compared to the original proposal by Secretary Zinke.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Good to know. All right. All right. Last one: a tax on the Antiquities Act to open national monuments for development. Could you give us a like you did for NEPA? Could you give us a quick review of the Antiquities Act and how it's unique from other land management legislation?
1: Yeah, uh, the Antiquities Act is is unique, obviously, because um, it's from the early 1900s, and, and 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 it was passed when 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 Roosevelt was was uh, was president, and um, the main reason why the Antiquities Act was passed. Is because the president recognized that that democracy is kind of messy business, takes a long time. It's hard to get legislation passed through sometimes, and if certain antiquities are are recognized and need to be prote- protected now, if the threat is imminent, it's important for um, the executive branch to be able to take action and protect those things without waiting for this for this crazy legislative process to 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 potentially work or not work. So that's why the Antiquities Act was passed and what the Antiquities Act allows the President to do and this is the only um, type of designation that the president can do um, is to um, is to designate a national monument. So it would be an administratively designated national monument. Congress can designate a national monument too. Congress can designate national parks, but Congress can designate wilderness but the president can only designate a national monument. And there's certain criteria that are outlined in the Antiquities Act. And it's proven to be like a really important bedrock conservation law. So for example, um, Grand Teton um, National Park used to be a national monument. The Grand Canyon used to be a national monument. uh, uh, Joshua Tree used to be a national monument. All these places that are really important to climbers Started out as national monuments, Devil's Tower in Wyoming is still a national monument. So this is a really, really important um, uh, piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. And um, there's always been attacks on the Antiquities Act. You know, like you shouldn't give that much authority to the president. The president is 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 tying up too much land. And and um, so so that's been that's been the criticism of the Antiquities Act since the beginning, right? For over a right. hundred years, that's been the that's been the attack. The interesting thing is that this current attack on the antiquities act is the first time since uh since the 70s that 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 a president has proposed to make a really large change uh um to a national monument at at grand staircase escalante and bear's ears mm-hmm. and um yeah so that's 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 what happened one of the attacks is hey no one's ever made a national monument this big bear's ears is 1.35 million acres remember way back when you know almost 100 a little less than 100 years ago when Grand Canyon was established that national monument was over 800,000 acres large yeah so so saying that there was ne- there were never big monuments is just hogwash it's just not true right. so so there's a lot of false information out there about how presidents have used the Antiquities Act um it's interesting that this particular um, adjustment, which at Bear's Ears was 85 percent reduction, an 85 percent reduction, and it left out thousands and thousands of cultural sites and, and areas of of traditional value. And that the 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 real painful thing about that reduction is that it correlates perfectly with the oil and gas potential and uranium potential in the area. There's a there's a uranium mine just just nearby, and actually Obama kind of carved out this mine and a couple other things associated with the mine in order to make the Bears Ears National Monument. It's a uranium mine that, um, that's, uh, that's still active today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there, there is specific language in the antiquities act that says designated th- with the smallest area possible, right? I mean, well, there doesn't is the smallest land,
1: area possible. It's says smallest, or something. smallest area that allows it to be managed so that is the big question that's that's where the the gray area is 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 what does it mean to be managed properly does that mean it has to be tiny is that big and what we would argue is it means that you it has to be the smallest area that you can manage the resources and if you are cutting out thousands of cultural resources then that is obviously too small because you 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 can't manage the stuff that the monument was intended (laughs) To, intended for in the first place. So yeah, right. that, that is, that is the sticking point is what is the, 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 the amount of space that a monument should take up in order to manage those, those resources
0: properly. Right. And in addition to that gray area, presidents can designate these monuments. Can they reduce them or rescind them? So that's
1: where we get into the, the laws from the 1970s, FLIPMA. And that's where, um, that's where the, I think that the answer lies to that question. Can they, you know, the antiquity, nobody argues that the Antiquities Act doesn't give the president the authority to make a monument. But the big question is, does it also give the president the authority to shrink a monument or rescind a monument? And in FLIPMA, which is a law that, 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 um, uh, describes a lot of different important, um, uh, things that we have to do to manage our public lands. it clearly says that um, that 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 the president or really it says the Secretary of interior, but 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 we we sort of consider the Secretary a proxy for the President. We say that that person, the administration, does not have the ability to um, reduce or rescind a monument without the without um, approval of Congress. So that's the, that's the bone of contention. We yeah. believe that, 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 that the president, the President Trump reducing um, Bears Ears National Monument by 85% is, um is, is, is illegal and, and against the constitution.
0: Right. Yeah. You guys aren't, you guys aren't the only one that are, that are against this uh, organizational wise. Um, well, didn't Obama designate an even smaller, Monument that was originally proposed by the tribes, didn't they have like a bigger number than what was actually designated as the monument?
1: Yeah, so the original proposal by the intertribal coalition that was that was submitted to 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 Obama to the to to the Council on Environment. Inver- Inver- In- Sorry, I'll just say CQ. I'm a little tongue tied with that. <laughs> it's a mouthful That was originally proposed to CQ was for about one point eight million acres. All right. Mm-hmm. And um, and after a long um, analysis um, and, you know, I moved, I, I moved to D.C. specifically to engage with the president's office. On Bears Ears National Monument, it took over a year for us to mm-hmm. have discussions with the, with with CQ about about climbing and the and and the monument and 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 what areas could be um, enlarged and what areas could be could be reduced, you know, based on the original proposals. And um, in the end, the president designated 1.35 million acres. And like I said, he considered certain things like the existing uranium mine or the needs of of local communities not everyone was happy but but you're right it was about 500,000 acres less than the original intertribal coalition proposal which by the way um is reinvigorated and the intertribal coalition is uh is 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 making another play at you know not just reinstating the original bears ears monument but actually growing it to the original size of 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 their proposal from six years ago
0: gotcha okay yeah i didn't i didn't know i know they were you know reinvigorating but i didn't realize that they were yeah with that additional last piece there um very interesting and like the argument was made that oh that you know president's locking up all this land uh in southeast utah well it was already federal land you know managed by the blm and the forest service so does that argument hold much water because a lot of it wasn't the grazing and other uses like that grandfathered in to the monument yeah, designation. So that,
1: and that was a, it was a, it was a pretty good PR campaign by the, by the detractors of the monument that you're not going to be able to walk on it. You're not going to go backpacking. You're not going to be able to climbing. They basically said, you're not gonna be able to use this land if it's a, if it's a monument. So mm. I think it's really important for us to sort of understand like, what do you get from a monument? When, when wh- why would you want that thing? And, and what are the benefits and, and costs associated with a, with a monument designation? And really, if you're a rancher, or if you're a hunter or a climber, mountain biker, you're not going to lose much when you, when, when, with, the mon- with that particular monument designation or anything at all. Really, the only person, the only entity that's going to that's lose is, is if you really wish to develop um, uh, uranium plays or oil and gas. So it was really something that um, provided a, a mineral withdrawal. A withdrawal of the ability to develop in that area, and we believe that the costs associated with additional development were much greater than the benefits. um, I'm I'm sorry, were were much less. the The costs were much more than the benefits associated with making the uh, the monument. So, the the other interesting thing about that is, if you had a claim that was proven, in other words, there's a lot of people who have claims uh in within Bears Ears National Monument but if you have a proven out claim that was going into operation that would be grandfathered in so mm. so if you were that type of it, uh company you could still um you know execute your plan but if you just had a claim and you hadn't proven it out and you were just and you were just sitting on the land uh you really you really don't get to exercise um the ability to to develop that claim after the right. monument was designated
0: right right yeah so what kind of precedent does this set for just public lands in general? Like, does this really expose the rest of our public lands to rescindment or, you know, or, you know, reduction if, uh, if, you know, bears ears stands. Well, I think
1: it, it's really specific to monuments. Um, and it's, and it's symbolic of how you can modify public lands based on, um, your support for, uh, for energy dominance, the the losing public lands, for example, when we go back to what we were originally talking about with the BLM, the, pub, the you know, federal agencies can sell off public lands. I mean, the federal agency has been disposing of public lands for a hundred years, oh, yeah. selling off lands. And, you know, we have a, and and, and now we have historical context. We can say, like, what happens to public lands when the government sells them off? When the government sells off public lands or gives away public lands to the states, what happens to them? Do they do they remain public? Do they get developed? Do they get sold off to private industry and private entities? And, and, and we see that that's what, that's what happens. But with the Antiquities Act, we are basically um damaging if this if this 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 action by the president by the trump administration stands we're actually damaging one of these fundamental cornerstone conservation laws that 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 we described a couple minutes ago and saying like if congress can't take action this is the only thing we can do we can have the president um designate a national monument and the, the the big problem i see is that we do not want our public lands to be political chips to be playing ping pong with these with these federal lands. So for example, well then the then the president after Trump can then reinstate it. And then the president after after him or her can can rescind it. And we exactly. wanna have we wanna have some certainty. So one of the most important things about the Antiquities Act is the word certainty. If a, if a monument is designated, it's not gonna be rescinded unless you know something really crazy happens. Like for example, mm. back in the Fifties and sixties, some some monuments were modified in order to help out with war efforts. In the forties, rather, when war efforts. So, so you know, there are certain situations, and, and sometimes land is added to the monument so that other land can be traded. Um, but but never has there been a like a wholesale um, reduction. Like we're seeing right now, and for the reasons we're seeing right now, and post Flipma Law, so for all of those different reasons, this is super damaging to um, to our public land system because that was an important authority that the president has, and it is interesting that President Trump, who's, who's a bit of an authoritarian president, I mean, he you know takes certain actions unilaterally, that he's interested in in in. In reducing his authority on public lands, I mean that's really what he's doing. But but by, by, <laughs> by hurting the Antiquities Act,
0: that's a good call. I never thought about it that way. That makes sense though. <laughs> so, in conclusion, in relation to these threats, uh, what does your day to day kind of look like? You said you know I know you spend a lot of time in D.C. So, what are some what are some tangible actions that you've taken? Can you give us some examples of you know what your what your day to day might look like while you're in D.C.
1: Oh, in DC. Yeah. I mean, day to day in general, you know, working on loads of projects around the country, federal, mm. um, uh, land plan r- revisions. And then this Bears Ears lawsuit is sh- certainly takes up a lot of our time. Yeah, um, you know, it, it ebbs and flows right now. Things are really hot and we're, we're, we're having to, uh, we actually just submitted a, um, a uh, an updated complaint and and new declarations, so that 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 takes some time. But in Washington D.C., when we go there, we we try to meet with um basically three different types of people. We try to meet with legislators, so we so we like to get meetings with congressional members, both on the House and Senate side, especially ones in offices that have something to do with the uh, committees. On, on public lands, so that would be the uh, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee and the House Natural Resources Committee. So we, we, we focus on that, trying to um, work through um, legislation that can affect uh, public lands and climbing. And then the second type of, of person that we try to meet with is federal land managers. So we like to meet with the U.S. Forest Service. And there's a ton of confusion right now dealing with climbing management and Forest Service land. So for this upcoming trip, I'm going to be focused on that right now. Post 10 sleep and a couple other things, you know, we are really <laughs> having to focus on general climbing management issues on Forest Service land. So we're dealing with that. Um so this brings up, you know, going back to the question of what's the problem with moving the BLM to um, Grand Junction and Portland and Salt Lake City and splitting it up like that. And one of the problems is, is that when you go to Washington, D.C., it's really important that you can meet with all the federal land managers. And if the BLM is not there, it's not just the access fund can't meet with the BLM if they're not there, but legislators can't. So so often legislators need to meet with the with administrators and talk about, um uh, plans and legislation, and if the BLM just doesn't have a big presence in uh, Washington D.C., you're going to lose that. So when we're in Washington D.C., we're we're trying to meet with the Bureau of Land Management, the Park Service, and the Forest Service, and pushing our um, our agenda there. And then the last type of person we we like to meet with are nonprofit, other nonprofits, and partners. So we like to meet with. Uh, uh, National Parks Conservation Association and the Wilderness Society and other friends of ours who are who are in Outdoor Industry Association, other friends of ours who are in D.C. who we're working collaboratively with. So those are the, the three main types of meetings that we try to schedule on a D.C. trip.
0: Cool. Right on. Um yeah, you got the climb the hill event every year. It's been going on for a number of years now, and you guys did a lot. Of, you know, it's a very productive event, and that's really cool. You get uh, other just kind of uh, local advocates to to join you on those on that trip, and and uh, you join the American Alpine Club as well. And I, I assume you got plans to do that again this year.
1: Yeah, so we're thinking about what that's going to look like for next year. And I've been thinking a lot about how to reformat that, how to make it even more effective. You know, like you said, we've been doing it for a handful of years, about four years. And um, I think that there are some ways that we can make it more productive. Not that it hasn't been, it's been a really good success, but you got to keep changing things. Mm -hmm. And then two, also changing it to sort of um, acknowledge that things are changing in Washington, DC. So five years ago, there just weren't as many fly-ins, but now everyone's doing flying so tons of people are going are flying into DC and lobbying or advocating for their needs and it's it's ubiquitous and i think we need to make a couple adjustments to stand out to make sure that that event is 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 still really effective so we have got to we got to change it a little bit streamline mm-hmm. it make it make, maybe make it a little bit more effective in a couple different ways um, i'm thinking about different ways to um, educate to help educate our network. So we've got, you know, 130 um, affiliates around the country. Could we do a better job at growing advocates and having? the local climbing organizations be better at government relations and interfacing with their state offices. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And then by helping to train our um, local affiliates, we would have a much better pool when we choose um, you know, who we want to bring in to DC for a fly-in. So, so I, I want to sort of connect our, our DC advocacy with our local affiliates a little bit more. And that's, that's a goal of mine for the next couple of years.
0: Awesome. That's, that's great. That's so encouraging to hear. What are your final notes for climbing advocates looking to get involved and learn more about the issues that we discussed today?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing for a climbing advocate is to, um, is to make sure to acknowledge what your sweet spot is. You know, you have a certain issue and, 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 uh, that's that's close to you, and you need to be an expert on that and to do that, you need to collaborate with 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 other interests with other with other recreation groups. you need to build relationships with land managers as well as build relationships like I just said with legislators, with your local legislators and if people can sort of um, figure out how to do All of those things at the same time, and everyone does it a little bit differently, but building relationships is the most important thing. We're going to have success. So um, yeah, making sure to um, be cool, build relationships, not piss people off, and acknowledge that there's a lot of people, a lot of users of our open, open spaces, of our state parks and municipal parks and federal lands, and really thinking about that, that there's a lot of people who are, who are vying for the same piece of the pie. And as climbing advocates, I think we need to acknowledge that, acknowledge other uses and figure out where we need to
0: fit in order to get the best conditions for the climbing community. Awesome. Perfect. So like identify those values that hit close to home for you. I know it could be kind of overwhelming looking at all the issues that we're dealing with, but identify the ones that you're mostly, you know, related to and go from there. And go from there and, and
1: and exactly. So don't worry so much about this NEPA revision. Don't worry so much about the antiquities act. we need. The Access Fund is trying to, you know, inform all of our members in the climbing community about these situations, but recognize that, you know, you can make the, the local climbers are the ones that are going to make the most headway on local issues. And that's where we need our affiliates.
0: All right. How about it? Thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time to come on the show and uh, leaving us with some very wise words there at the end. Uh, What he said there at the end really resonated with me personally and picking the things that really hit close to home for you and advocating for change on those topics. Don't allow yourself to get too overwhelmed by all these issues that we talked about today or any other issue that the climbing community might be facing. Maybe just pick one or two of those things and just get after it and really focus your efforts there. I think that would probably be best and most sustainable for you. So, thank you, Eric. Again, that was that was fantastic. And lastly, I want to just want to say real quick that the show is approaching 5,000 downloads, and I think this episode is going to push it over that mark. So, thank you so much. Really psyched. That's a that's a milestone number for me. So, please, please keep sharing the show. Um, put it out there as much as you possibly can. I would love to see the show reach 10,000 listens by the end of the year. So let's, let's double that, that number here in the next 11 months or so. Thank you so much again, and I will catch you all next month.